We'll go ahead and be seated this morning. Um, by the way, when you came in, there should have been on the seats a study guide for this message, just to help you track along as we come to the Word of God this morning. Um, be praying for me especially. Um, I was not planning on preaching this morning. <laughs> I found out Friday afternoon that I would be, um, and thankfully had a message in the archive that I could pull out. But pray for me that as I've kind of gone over this message and reworked it some, that even though it's an old message, the Spirit of God would be pleased to use it in a fresh way. We're turning in our Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John's first letter, 1 John chapter number 2. 1 John chapter number 2. Text we're going to consider this morning is verses 12 through 17. 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. When you found it, I invite you to stand with me one last time as we read the word of God together. 1 John chapter 2. Reading from verses 12 through 17. This morning, um, reading from the New American Standard Bible. 1 John chapter 2, reading from verses 12 through 17. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will abide forever. Join with me as I breathe a word of prayer, ask for the Spirit's help, and then we will launch into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we invite your participation through the Spirit in the proclamation and the reception of this word. We pray that as we take a few moments to think about a subject that we don't often talk about, we ask that your Spirit would be at work, taking the word that we hear, and pressing it deeper into our hearts and lives. Father, I pray always, and I pray it once again, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things out of your law. I pray for myself especially, that in the words of the old hymn, breathe on me breath of God, fill me with life anew, that I may love as thou dost love, and do as thou wouldst do. I ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. A few Christmases ago, I went to see a movie with my wife's family. We had just come back from spending Christmas down in the Bay Area, and since they were going to be around for the evening, we figured we'd go see a movie. 
The movie I went to watch was a movie called Darkest Hour. I highly recommend it. Um, it featured Gary Oldman playing the role of Winston Churchill. A brilliant presentation of, I'm a history buff. Um, those of us who studied World War II, there was an event in 1940 called the, it was called the May War Cabinet Crisis. Essentially, Churchill faced a mutiny within his own government in relation to how to deal with a particular problem. If you know anything about the date, May 1940 is right in the middle of World War II. On the one side of the British government, you had the man who was known as the Bulldog of Britain, Sir Winston Churchill, war veteran, comeback politician. He'd been in office and then found his way out of office and found his way back. Popular columnist, and now he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. For years, he'd been warning about the reality that any sort of attempts to make friendly with as he called him, Mr. Hitler across the pond, was a bad idea. So on one side you had him and a few people who supported him. But on the other side you had those who believed in a policy that history would call the policy of appeasement. The policy of appeasement. This faction of the British government believed that the answer was not to keep fighting with Mr. Hitler. As they saw it, okay, we're down the road of this, by May 1940, the war had been going on for about a year. Okay, we're still early enough in this that if we give him what he wants, he'll leave us alone. Of course, history up to that point had proven that Mr. Hitler was not very reasonable, and actually, you gave him what he wanted, and then he just upped what he wanted. But they saw it as, give him what he wants, and then just offer terms of peace to him and the Nazi war machine. And so you had this conflict that existed between one government with two different mindsets. You had one mindset that understood that the enemy was indeed the enemy. That there were to be no terms of peace, there were to be no terms of compromise. You had a side that understood that the enemy wanted nothing less than the destruction of the other side. And on the other hand, you had folks who believed that the enemy was actually quite reasonable, you know, quite open to conversation. You could actually appease this enemy. I'll come back to what happens in that movie at the end of the message. I'm going to park that for a second because, as is often the case, I view everything through homiletical lenses. And so as I'm sitting there watching this movie, I start thinking of, Sermon illustrations. Pastor Frank, I imagine you kind of feel the same at times. Um, you just, you see something, wow, that's an interesting illustration. You see, I find in that historical situation a frightening parallel. Here's the parallel I see. You as a Christian have an enemy. This enemy is formidable. This enemy is ruthless. This enemy is willing to stop at nothing to see you destroy it. And yet there are two responses we're all faced with. We're all posed with the same choice. Do we fight this enemy or do we make 
terms of peace with it? Do we declare war or do we make our way to the negotiating table? You may have picked up from the reading this morning that the enemy I'm thinking about is what is called in Bible terms, the world. The world. Of course, we'll define what we mean by the world as we go in this message. But let me get to my point this morning. In the text that's before us this morning, John is going to give us some help in answering that question of how do we approach this enemy called the world? Do we fight this enemy or do we make terms of peace? Do we adopt a policy of conflict or a policy of appeasement? Well, before I jump into our specific text this morning, I think it would be good since we're jumping into a context here. Let's take a moment and think about the letter of 1 John as a whole. Let's do some background work really quickly. So, we find ourselves in the first letter penned by John the Apostle. One of the original 12. John writes to an unnamed church. Now, some say the church was Ephesus. It might be. Tradition does tell us that John, after his imprisonment, settled in Ephesus. Maybe true, maybe not. We don't know for certain. But while we don't know who he's writing to, we do know why he's writing. In fact, John gives us four purpose statements throughout his letter that tell you why he writes this book. For a moment, let's look at some of these really quickly. So turn with me to chapter 1 of the letter. 1 John, chapter 1. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. 1 John, chapter 1, and verses 3 and 4. So John writes, What we have seen and heard, this word of life that he talks about in verse 1, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So John writes with the explicit purpose that the joy that he has and the other believers have would be made complete complete it would be made more full so that's the first reason he writes well turn over to chapter 2 verse 1 chapter 2 verse 1 john says my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin and if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous so here's another reason he's writing he's writing so that his readers will not go living in sin well Jump down to the end of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 26. He gives us reason number 3. So 1 John 2, verse 26. In fact, let me read from verse 25 to get the context. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Okay, so this purpose number 3. He's writing to protect his readers from false teaching and those who peddle it. So, number one, he writes to see the joy of his readers come to completion. Number two, he writes so that his readers will not go living in sin. Number three, he writes to protect his readers from false teaching and those who peddle it. One more reason. Turn with me back to the end of the letter, chapter 5. So, chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. Purpose number four. John writes for his hearers to have full assurance of their salvation in Christ. So I'll give you those four reasons again. He's writing to see the shared joy of his readers come to completion. He's writing so that his readers will not go on living in sin. He's writing to protect his readers from false teaching and those who peddle it. And he writes so that his hearers can have full assurance of their salvation in Christ. Now, 1 John is notoriously difficult to outline because John doesn't write like Paul does. So you read Paul and Paul kind of is super logical. Point one, here are my subpoints. Point two, here are the subpoints for that one. John, not so much. He's kind of all over the place. He weaves in and out of his purposes, and you kind of have to stay close to him when you read him because he'll start here, and then he'll move here, and then come back here, and you're like, okay, hold on. Weren't we just here a minute ago? Well, this section that we're reading, if you want to turn back to chapter 2, where our text is, this section in chapter 2, which begins all the way in verse 3 and goes down to verse 27, is dealing with that fourth purpose, this purpose of assurance of salvation in Christ. He wants them to be sure with no doubt that they have eternal life. These false teachers who were in their mix were telling them that you don't have eternal life unless you adopt this knowledge we're giving you. They were what are called Gnostics. They believed that there was this hidden knowledge that only they had, and you couldn't have full eternal life unless you came to them. And John wants them to recognize, no, you have it already. You already possess eternal life. And so in this section of verses 3 through 27, John kind of talks about assurance, and he gives three sets of assurance. Again, we're just painting a background here before we come to our text. So he gives three grounds of assurance that the believer has. So verses 3 through 6 of chapter 2, he gives what we could call a moral assurance. Moral assurance. Simply put, walking in obedience is evidence of salvation. So verse 3 says, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So how can a believer know that they are saved? Well, they walk in obedience. Secondly, so he has a moral assurance. Secondly, you can call this a social assurance. Let's give it that title, a social assurance. What does that mean? Well, simple. Love for believers is evidence for salvation. Verses 7 through 17. So you have a moral assurance, you have a social assurance. Thirdly, you have what you can call a theological assurance. Theological assurance, what do I mean by that? Simple. Believing the truth about Christ is evidence of salvation, verses 18 to 27. So you have all th- you have three grounds of assurance that he wants to give. Morally, you're walking in obedience. You're walking the same way that Jesus walked. Socially, you have love for other believers. Theologically, you believe the truth about Christ. And so we're in that second strand there from verses 7 through 17, this social assurance. And it's interesting because as John seeks to give his readers assurance, he wants his readers to be assured. He says that. He takes some time to remind them 
in this section of what true love looks like. But he also takes some time to remind them that there's a kind of love that God hates. That there's a kind of love that God is not too tolerant of. And that if you say you are a believer and that you truly love the brethren, you're also going to hate certain things. And so verse 15, there's our central command in this section. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. When I wrote this message a while ago, I gave it the semi-humorous title of a hate-hate relationship. In our culture, we talk about the concept of having a love-hate relationship with someone or something. Sometimes you love it, sometimes you hate it. Well, John's not calling us to a love-hate relationship with the world, wherever the world is here, and we'll define it in a few moments. No, he's calling us to a flat-out hate-hate relationship. Far from a, sometimes we're good, sometimes we're not. Whatever the world is here, John wants us to be clear in our relationship to it. So why should we be concerned about this enemy that's called the world? Uh, Think about it. Why should we seek to have not a love-hate relationship with the world, but a hate-hate relationship? Why is it that, much like the war crisis in 1940, we can't think about appeasement where the world is concerned? I'll tell you my conclusion up front. You're not supposed to love the world. Verse 15. So why is that the case, though? Why is it that the Christian should have a hate-hate relationship to the world, whatever this thing called the world is? Well, in our remaining time this morning, I want to consider five lines of evidence from the pen of the apostle as to why we should think twice about any kind of relationship to the world. Five lines of evidence that come to us from verses 12 through 17. And my hope is that as we look at these five, That they would speak for themselves in answering the question of what kind of relationship we should have to this world. So five lines of evidence. You'll know me. I can be a little long-winded, so I'm going to try and be short as best I can. Let's jump straight in. Point number one. Why should you rethink your relationship with this world? Well, number one, consider who you are. Consider who you are. Verses 12 through 14. Consider who you are. The first line of evidence that John gives you to think about is grounded in the believer's identity. Despite what society tells us, you are primarily who you are, not what you do. And that's true spiritually as it is everywhere else. And so John takes a moment and reaffirms the believer's identity in verses 12 through 14. So look at it with me. 1 John chapter 2, reading from verses 12 through 14. Now you look closely at that text, and you see three groups there. Children, fathers, young men. Seems simple enough. So you look at that, and what's the first conclusion you come to? Well, he's writing to three separate groups. He's writing to group number one, children. Group number two, fathers. Group number three, young men. Seems pretty straightforward. Well, you probably are gathering that. Since I'm raising a question, it probably isn't that straightforward. 
And I would say, yeah, it's actually not quite that straightforward. You see, there are a few options for how you can view this text. You look at commentators, and commentators kind of have four big ones. Some of them say that he's referring indeed to three separate groups. No, literal groups. You've got those who are children, those who are the fathers of those children, and those who are sort of younger, unmarried men in the congregation. That's the one argument that some people put forward. Another group says that, well, this is just metaphors for different levels of growth. And in all fairness, this is where the majority of commentators go. That when he says children and fathers and young men, he's talking about spiritually speaking, not physically. Some say, well, yeah, they're separate groups, but there's some overlap between the three. There is yet another group who say, well, the fathers and young men here is a reference to elders and deacons. That one seems a bit more of a stretch because then what do you do with children in that case? And they say the children are church members. Seems more of a stretch. I'll be honest, I don't think all any of those four fit. The biggest two reasons, there's a number of them you can give. Biggest two reasons is one, the list is out of chronological order. So you look at it, John doesn't say either children, young men, fathers, or fathers, young men, children. He kind of has them in the wrong order when you look at it in the text. And second of all, you look at the descriptions he gives that we'll look at in just a moment, they're not very specific. Okay, so he says, well, you're a little child because your sins, your sins, verse 12, have been forgiven you for his namesake. Well, isn't that true of every Christian? Is it only mature Christians who have forgiveness of sin? Well, no. Every Christian has forgiveness of sins. Or is it only fathers, verse 13, who know him who's been from the beginning? Well, no. We would readily acknowledge, well, every believer has come to know the one who is eternal, the one who's from the beginning. From the beginning, excuse me. Now, I take the view that some commentators do, and I think they're right here. That John isn't writing to three separate groups, but rather John is writing to one group, all believers, and he's using a literary device to make a really profound point. As I was reading and preparing, one commentator summed it up in one sentence so well. I, Howard Marshall, says, all believers should have the innocence of childhood, the strength of youth, and the mature knowledge of age. So rather than, I take the view that rather than speaking to three separate groups, he's talking to believers in general, and he's calling them three different things to talk about where they should be as believers. As Jesus said, that you know, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you should become like a little child. And yes, the Bible speaks positively about the strength and the vigor that youth has. And of course, the, the Bible speaks incredibly highly of the mature knowledge that comes with greater age. And so I tell you that John is speaking to all believers and saying all three of these things should be true of you. And if that's the case, then John is starting at the basics. He's starting at the ABCs, the first principles of who we are as believers. Well, what in particular? Three things. First of all, note that he says that you're forgiven. That you're forgiven. So verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. The believer is the one who has experienced the forgiveness of sins, past, 
present and future. The believer is the one who knows by experience what John has said at the beginning of this letter. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The believer is the one who knows by experience what John has already said in principle. And know that John says that this forgiveness is on the basis of Jesus' namesake. When the Bible uses that language of Jesus' name, it's referring to both his person and his saving work. Because of what Jesus has done, you, Christian, have forgiveness of sins in the here and now. Can I pause for a second and say this is one reason I could never be a Roman Catholic? I love my Catholic friends. I do think there are believers who are Roman Catholic. And yet I couldn't, in good conscience, become a Roman Catholic because Roman Catholicism teaches that you can't know you're forgiven here and now. Not unless you pay penances, you do confession, you go through the sacramental system, and even then in this life, you can't have assurance of forgiveness. No, my Bible says that I know here and now that my sins have been forgiven me because of what Jesus has done. And it's important that John starts here because our temptation is to kind of jump to, okay, what do I need to do? But John says, hold your horses. You can't jump to what you need to do without knowing what's been done for you. Let me me, me say that again. Before the believer can do anything for God, he needs to know what has been done for him by God. And so John starts where we should start. With the gospel, with the good news of forgiveness of sins in Christ. So you've been forgiven, you're forgiven. But secondly, he goes on and says, not only are you forgiven, but you have an intimate relationship with the Father. You have an intimate relationship with the Father. So three times in verses 13 and 14, John says that you have come to know him. Who is from the beginning? The word for know here, there's two words for knowledge in the Bible. Both of them are used positively. One of them refers to just intellectual knowledge, just the ability to mentally grasp something. But there's another word that's used, and the word carries the idea of a experiential knowing, a knowing that flows from experience. For our regulars, in a few weeks, we'll be beginning a series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about this element of spiritual experience because I think there is a lot of confusion out there about this. But John's not confused about it. He says, no, if you're a believer, you are one who has come to have an intimate knowledge, a knowledge that flows from a living experience of who God is. So you're forgiven. You have an intimate relationship with the Father. Thirdly, he says, you have conquered the evil one. You've conquered the evil one. Not only does the believer know the experience of forgiveness and the experience of knowing the Father, but they've conquered the evil one. That's important because John's going to talk to us about the world in this passage. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he makes it clear that the world is under the control of the evil one. Because the whole world lies in wickedness. But here's, here's the beautiful thing. 
that as we grow in spiritual strength, as we partake of the word of God, as we pray, as we engage in fellowship, as we grow in our faith. Remember back in Jude, those of you who were here, as we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Here's the good news. If I can borrow the words of the late preacher Adrian Rogers, we start to gain an upper hand on the underworld. There's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare these days. A lot of talk of how it is that, you know, we can conquer the evil one. The good news is, the evil one has already been conquered because of the person and work of Christ. And because he has been conquered, we live in that victory. Yes, as has been described to me, the devil is the person who's been defeated, but wants to keep on fighting. But the beauty is we don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory because we have already conquered the evil one. That's the first reason why a believer should think a little more deeply about their relationship to the world. Who you are dictates how you respond. If I can put it in a four-word summary, identity always precedes activity. Identity always precedes activity. So it's good that John starts there. He starts with considering who you are. Second line of evidence that he gives us. So consider who you are. Number two, consider what the world is. Consider what the world is. So beginning of verse 15, he says, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. Okay, now we need to pause and do a little bit of work. Because if this is the central command of this passage, if you've noticed, John has not given us any commands up to this point. This is the central command of this passage. And he says, do not love the world. Well, now would be a good time, well, as good a time as any, I guess, to actually define this term, world. What does it mean to love the world? Well, when you read your Bible, the word world is used in different senses. I have them up on the screen for you. When we think about the world, used in different senses. So in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24, the world just means the created planet. You know, this mass that is floating through space by the decree of God that orbits the sun. The Bible uses the world in that sense. In John chapter 13 and verse 1, the term world is used to speak of the people who live on this planet. <laughs> Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Sometimes the world just refers to the human race, the people who make up the world. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 12, the term is used to speak of Gentiles instead of Jews. So the world is everybody who, in the biblical conception, can be everyone who is not a Jew. So, do we have any Jewish people in the room? Everyone says no. Great. In the biblical conception, you're all part of the world. In fact, that's what the term Gentile means. Goyim, nations. Everybody else. (laughs) All of those are valid biblical uses, but all of them aren't the one that's being used here. If I give you a, I 
try not to use too many Greek terms in sermons, but I will for this because it's important. The term that's used here for world is the Greek term cosmos. Cosmos. Now, that word comes into English in two very different ways. So when we talk about like the universe, we often talk about cosmic. So everything that relates to the universe as a whole. But the word also comes into our English language in relation to the word cosmetic. Now, I've never worn makeup a day in my life, but I'm reliably told that the purpose for cosmetics, I want to be real careful because, of yeah, I just realized, Kofi, do you really want to go down this rabbit hole this morning? I'm told by some ladies, I'll put it this way, I'm told by some ladies that the purpose for wearing makeup and cosmetics and all of that is to kind of just neaten up what's already there. It's to give order or arrangement to what's already there. No, yeah, let me be careful. <laughs> I was going to make a fun comment. I was like, nope, um, this is being live streamed. I got myself in serious trouble. But this word cosmos carries the idea of order, of arrangement, of a system. of things being put together in a particular way. When John uses the word world here, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about the created planet, the people who live on it, the race of humanity, Gentiles instead of Jews. No, no, no. John's referring to, here's my definition, an organized system in opposition to God. So our definition of world is an organized system in opposition to God. He's talking about a government, if you will. In fact, that word cosmopolitan that we use in English comes from that idea. The arrangement of a city, the arrangement in terms of its leadership. John's talking about a government. A kingdom, an enemy kingdom to the kingdom of God. A kingdom that is in complete opposition to God's plan, God's purposes, and God's people. And John says in relation to that system, there is only one rule of engagement. Do not love it. You see, believers are called to be loving, but we're not called to be equally loving to everyone and everything. Sometimes we're called to not love some things. I'll say more about that in my third point. Let's jump straight to it. So you need to consider who you are. Consider what the world is. Number three, consider where your affections lie. Consider where your affections lie. End of verse 15. says do not love the world nor the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him this is a simple point but it's worth taking a minute to think about john would have us to understand that love for god and love for this world are incompatible emotions that i can't say oh i i love this system of this world and, every, and we'll talk about what makes up the world and what you're not supposed to love in particular 
in just a moment. But whatever makes up this world, I can't love that and love God at the same time. It would be akin to someone saying, Kofi, I can't stand your wife, Laura. I don't know why you would. My wife's great. But someone comes to me and says, I can't stand your wife, Laura. And then me say, okay, we can still be friends. They're like, no, that can't work. <laughs> now we've got a problem. In the words of my favorite preacher, Dr. Vody Barkham, that dog will hunt. Like, some, some about that just doesn't work. <laughs> like, you, you can't in one breath say, I hate your wife. But I love you. And then, no, no I love my wife. Which means if you don't love my wife, we've got a problem. Honey, turn with me to John chapter 15. Because Jesus seems to be very clear. I think this is where John gets it from. Jesus seems to be very clear in his relationship to the world and the relationship believers would have to this world system. John chapter 15 and verse 18. Jesus said, give you a minute to get there. John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So the world hates Jesus. And we are those who say we love Jesus. Therefore, love for the world and love for God are completely incompatible. As Jesus said, you can't have two masters. You just can't. And can I draw your attention to something for a minute? Probably pick this up as we read it. So we started reading in verse 12. This is verse 15. Coming back to 1 John chapter 2, if you want to turn back there. Up to this point, John has only given us one command. The one command is in verse 15 that you are to not love the world. That much is clear. Have you noticed that the one command he gives has to do with our affections? It has to do with how we feel about this world. We're talking about, essentially, the subject of worldliness. There's a, there's a term we don't use too often these days. I, I grew up in a holiness Pentecostal tradition. We talked about worldliness a lot. Granted, our definition of worldliness was very weird. And I do not endorse it at all. Funny enough, neither did my parents. They didn't really pay much attention to it either. Often we think of worldliness as a rule, a matter of a rule book. So what's the phrase? Um, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Is that the phrase? Well, that's worldliness. I, I don't do that. I don't own a TV because that's worldly. I don't play cards. That's worldly. I don't drink alcohol because that's worldly. But it's interesting. John hasn't said any of that. <laughs> you see, worldliness, which is really what we're thinking about in this message, worldliness is not a matter of a rule book, this disaffected list of do's and don'ts. No, worldliness is primarily an issue of the heart. John would have you to understand that worldliness is really, if you boil it down to one question, who has your affections? Uh, 
If your affections are wedded to this world system, believer, be careful. Because it might say more about your relationship with God than you may want to admit. Also, John is clear. If you love the world, love the Father in you. Pick one. So, three lines of evidence so far. Consider who you are. Consider what the world is. Consider where your affections lie. Number four, consider what drives this world. Consider what drives this world. Consider what drives this world, verse 16. Okay, so we've defined what the world is. is this organized system, this arranged system, this government, this kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. Okay, we're told not to love it. Well, that begs the question, why should you not love it? Why is a policy of appeasement with this world such a problem? Well, for that, you need to just consider what drives this world. Consider what makes this world tick, verse 16. In particular, John's going to lay out three things for us. The governing policy, as it were, of this world system can be summed up in three things. Firstly, John says, for all that is in the world, verse 16, and he says, number one, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Now, key to understanding this first point of policy, as it were, is to understand, well, what is this word, flesh? Sometimes flesh can refer to the physical, natural body. And sometimes it's referring spiritually to the sinful nature as opposed to the redeemed nature, the new nature. Well, which one does John mean here? I think, personally, it's a bit of both. That the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, are those desires that our bodies want legitimate or illegitimate, that are warped and then driven by the sinful nature. Let me say that again. The desires or the lusts of the flesh are those desires that our bodies want, legitimate or illegitimate, that are warped and driven by the sinful nature. As commentator Gary Berg, I recommended his commentary on the last page of the study guide for this morning. As commentator Gary Burke puts it, the desires of the flesh are any desire, any sinful interest that draws us away from God or at least makes continuing fellowship with him impossible. Now, some would seek to restrict this to just merely sexual impulses. And I would say that's a part of it tiny part of it, but I think John's point is bigger than that. I think it's bigger than just that. I think these desires fire on two cylinders. They fire on the cylinder number one of, what do I want? And cylinder number two, how can I get it? What do I want, and how can I get it? And so in that sense, anything can be a desire of the flesh. Money, sex, power, comfort. This world system will stop at nothing. I worked in advertising for years. I know firsthand how it works. It will stop at nothing to stroke the desire center within you. 
as I said, I worked in advertising for years. I sat in the meetings with clients where we said, what's the emotional hook we can put in this campaign to make someone part with their money? And those people, they weren't being nefarious about it. They just recognized that if you're going to sell something, a good way to do it is to appeal to people emotionally. But here's the thing. If this world system is under the sway of the evil one, do you think the evil one can't use those things that people mean well with to drive our hearts away from God and towards the priorities of this world? I'm not that naive to think he can't do it. I, I think he perfectly can. Let's, let's take a minute. Let's, let's part the bus for a second. Let's get practical about this. As a believer, let's ask a few diagnostic questions to see whether the desires of the flesh are a problem. Do you get mad slash frustrated slash upset when you don't get your own way? Does it never cross your mind to say no to something that you want that might even be legitimate? You may think, God, where do you get that in the Bible? Well, Paul said it twice. That all things are lawful, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. But there are some things that you probably should say no to once in a while. As I said, I don't think that Paul, no, excuse me, John has just sexual ethics in mind. But I do think in this day and age where this is such a problem, we do need to ask this question. Do you find yourself agreeing with the sexual ethic of this world? And here's where it gets tricky. Because we can say, okay, I don't agree with it in speech or I'm not desiring it. Okay, can we talk about then the level of affectional expectations? Is our view of marriage and sexuality these Gifts that God gives to us that are good, and they're not. The Bible says that marriage is not to be rejected. That the marital bed is holy. Hebrews thirteen four. All these things. Is it possible that we find ourselves thinking more like the world out there does on these issues than the people of God should think? By the way, funny we're talking about this Wednesday night. We're going to be having a study in our midweek Bible study, talking about developing a distinctly Christian ethic. If you're wondering, okay, how do I actually think biblically about some of these issues? Because, of course, the Bible addresses them. So how do I deal biblically with them as a Christian? Well, feel free to come join us Wednesday night at 6.30, Lord willing. But that's the first thing, the desires of the flesh. Let's, like I said, I want to give us just a few questions to think practically about it. But John goes on and he says, not only are the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the flesh a problem. Secondly, there's a desire of the eyes. The lusts of the eyes, he says. Again, I think there's two things in play here. Number one, I think he's talking about desires that are driven by external forces. In other words, desires that are driven by what we can see. I see it, I want it. 
as one commentator put it, the tendency to be captivated by the outward shows of things without inquiring into their real value. Don't ask questions. No soul searching. It looks good, so I'll get it. But I think there's another element to this. Not only is there the desire that's driven by external forces, secondly, there's the desire that's driven by what I like to call social pressure. Desire driven by social pressure. What do you mean? The desire that's driven by what people can see about us. Hold on, this might get a little bit painful for someone in just a moment. You see, we live in a culture where we have been taught from our earliest to be people pleasers. In varying ways and forms, we have been taught that you live your entire life to conform to what everybody else out there says about things. Remember the realization when this hit me as a 16-year-old? That wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't grow up rich at all. And so I was always the type that I was like, why can't I have Nike trainers like everyone else? Why have I got to wear, actually, I don't even know if the brands carry over here. They were that unknown. And then it hit me as a teenager, wait a minute. The only reason you think that is because everyone else does it. And that's not, I'm not saying, by the way, it's wrong to love sneakers and all that stuff. That's great. But why do I feel this need that my life is somehow incomplete because I'm not keeping up with everyone else? I mean, we have a phrase, isn't the phrase in the English language, keeping up with the Joneses? Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, in his series of messages through the Letters of John, put it like this. He said, this can be understood, referring to the desire of the eyes, in a broader sense than a desire merely to possess things. The lust of the eyes certainly refers to the desires to, the, certainly refers to the desire to keep up with the Joneses in regard to appearance. Not only is it, what can my eyes see? Sometimes the desire of the eyes looks like, what can I do to have people look at me? It's, it's not necessarily the desire to own more stuff that John has in mind here. I think more specifically, it's the desire to own more stuff and do more things to be seen. That's a part of this. If I can be a little bit corny in my humor, which isn't difficult for me to do. It's not just the desires of my eyes, but it's the desire to have everyone else's eyes on me too. So once again, let's, let's park the homiletical bus and let's put some shoe leather on this. Do you care what you expose your eyes to? Now, let me put your ease. I'm not telling you to cancel your Netflix subscription or your Hulu subscription or whatever streaming service you use. I was telling Eddie this morning, I don't have a lot of recreational time, but when I do, I'm currently re-watching a TV show right now. I'm not saying that those things are wrong in and of themselves, because they're not. 
But there is a reality out there that as our culture continues to lose any sense of moral absolute, the things that our culture puts out for us to watch aren't always the most helpful things to watch. I was thinking about this just this weekend as I was looking over this and preparing this. I remember growing up as a kid and watching TV. And there were certain things you just didn't show on TV. That there were certain things that everyone, no matter how bad it got, they're never going to show this on TV. And I mean, there's still an element of that today. But now we've gotten to the point where we push the envelope so much, we push the envelope so much, and of course now because you have the internet where there is no censorship, the, the boundary line is just non-existent online. You can depict almost anything. And I sit there and I think, man, shows that, and it's not, when you watch shows particularly that have been on for a long time, and you can watch the evolution in what they talk about, you can watch the evolution in watch th- what they depict, what was acceptable once upon a time, and what's acceptable now. You sit there and think, man, I can't watch this anymore. Because something happened. There's been such a shift that it's just not appropriate anymore. The problem is, I think, like the theory that says that if you want to boil a frog in a pot, you don't just turn it all the way up because the frog's going to jump right out. For many of us, we've spent so long in the pot that as the culture just turned itself up slightly and it just kept on going and kept on going, some of us are just desensitized. You're just there, and you don't, we don't take any thought to think about it anymore. So we just take a moment to ask, do you care what you expose your eyes to? Because that's what our adversary uses to, to move our affections away from Christ and towards the things of this world. So do you take care what your eyes are exposed to? Do you have a preoccupation with how you are perceived? Yes, Christians should be those who care about their reputation. This is patently obvious from reading the Bible. We are those who want to have a good name in our world. We should absolutely care about that. But here's the thing. Our adversary is very crafty at taking what is a otherwise good desire and twisting it to the point where everything now is about how I'm perceived by people. I'm preoccupied with well, what will people say? So I can't tell my coworker about Jesus because my coworker will think I'm one of those Jesus freaks. Never mind, the Bible says we have to go into all the world. It didn't say the world will come to us. It says you're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. Oh, I can't do that. People will think of me as one of those religious weirdos. I won't tell that person that Okay, the lifestyle you're in is sinful and that you need to repent and come to Jesus Christ who will forgive you of that sin because they'll think I'm judgmental and unloving. I can't do that. Do you have a preoccupation with how you are perceived? Here's it gets really painful. Do you find that through what you say and what you do, you incite in others a preoccupation with how they are perceived? Is it possible that at times the... Yeah, I'm going to jump on this soapbox for a second. 
our culture has lost the concept of you don't open your mouth and just say the first thing that falls out. You just don't. But because we live in a culture where we're told everybody has an opinion, everyone has a right to express their opinion, you open your mouth without any thought to, how is what I'm saying actually wounding this person? Am I putting an invisible burden on this person that, in the words of Acts, neither I or my fathers were able to bear? Are we creating in people this sense of, man, I've got to be really careful because these people will talk about me if I don't do X. That may be true of the world. That shouldn't be true of Christians. So much more I'd like to say about that, but let me get off that soapbox for a second. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. Thirdly, our text says, New American Standard, the boastful pride of life. Now, this third one's a little harder to nail down. Now, the New American Standard, those of you who have the ESV in the room, renders the phrase as it is. It just says, the pride of life or the boastful pride of life. You look at other translations and there's a bit more of a spread. So normally when I'm in the pulpit, I preach out the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible kind of goes to the heart of it. It says pride in one's possessions. NASB says boastful pride of life. NIV says boasting in what one does and what one has. The New English translation says arrogance produced by material possessions. Now, I intentionally this week chose to use the NASB to preach from because I didn't want to get to my point too early. You see, the term that's used here for the pride of life is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here. But turn with me to James chapter 4. This is the other time this thing is used. Just take a minute. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Verse 16, the term for that's used here for pride, James 4, 16. But as it is, James says, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Only other time this word is used, it's the idea not just of a pride, but a kind of boastful pride. As one Greek resource puts it, it's a state of arrogance. I love this. A state of arrogance, but with the implication of complete lack of basis for such an attitude. Now, the reason why some translations say that it's to do with our possessions is because the second half of that phrase, the boastful pride of life, John uses it in 3.17, and he's referring to this world's goods, possessions. You put those together, and it's the idea... This pride of life is this, as one writer puts it, an attitude of pretentious arrogance or subtle elitism that comes from one's wealth, rank, or stature in society. An overconfidence that makes us lose any notion that we are dependent on God. I come from a culture where I'm a second generation, I'm second generation from Ghanaian immigrant parents. Parents left Ghana in the 1980s, moved to London. My parents' generation were obsessed with their children going to university and getting a degree and getting a high paying job. 
and I saw what happened with people my age who graduated from college. You know, had that piece of paper in their hand. And because they had this piece of paper in their hand, they subtly began to believe that they had arrived in the world. That they were somehow better than the person who was not college educated. And I'll put aside my views about college education for another time. But it's fascinating that something as simple as a degree could work in someone this boastfulness, this sense of I've arrived, I am better than the person who doesn't have this. I'm sure you've noticed this. You, you read the New Testament. This New Testament seems to be really down on rich people. It's almost as though the New Testament doesn't like rich people, which isn't true, actually. The Bible acknowledges that there were rich people in the church. But I think the reason why you read the New Testament and you see this constant downplaying of riches and possessions and affluence is this. The more riches that one has, the greater tendency the person has both to trust in those riches and to show them off. Think about it. We even have a phrase in the English language. We say financial security. As though to say the more money you have, the more secure you are. Well, the Great Depression demonstrated that that wasn't always the case. All it takes is one really bad decision or a set of bad decisions by any government and all the money you have can become pretty useless. Ask our brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe where literally they were carrying wheelbarrows of money to shops to buy a piece of bread. <laughs> but let me, let me pull myself back because before I give you the impression that this is just about dollars and cents, I think it's a massive part of it, before you even start thinking about self-sufficiency in relation to that, again, can I remind you that we've been taught to embrace this kind of self-sufficient, self-loving self pride before we even earned our first dollar. Before you ever got your first payment for anything, you were taught, I was taught, our world teaches not too differently to the Greco-Roman world of the first century, that humility, you know, self-abasement, having a low view of oneself, I mean an adequately low view, not a ridiculously low view, those are bad things. Our culture tells us that you're not supposed to do that. No, I'm not advocating for self-loathing and being a doormat. But can we be honest and say that for all the people who say, well, there are loads of people in our culture who struggle with low self-esteem, that's not always the case. <laughs> that sometimes it's not that we have a low self-esteem problem, it's that we have too high a view of ourselves. And John would have us to understand that you can't claim the kingdom of God and live with that kind of a mindset that boasts in self, that thinks because you've got some money or you've got some possessions that you are better than somebody else. According to John, that can't work. That can't work. Now, I say all of this, and it sounds like a really tall order. It sounds like, man, I can't do this. I can't fight these. 
Like if these are like, if it's like a fish in water, well, fish doesn't know what wet is. It just, it just lives in water. That's all it's ever known. If that's indeed the case, can I really do this? Can I really fight against the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, pride in one's possessions? Can I really fight these things? Well, what if I told you that this wasn't unique? What if I told you that someone had encountered all of these and came out the other side? What if I could give you an example of somebody who was faced with these temptations and was able to reject them? What if I, what if I knew someone like that? Well, thankfully, I do know someone like that. His name is Jesus. Because you look at Jesus' temptation, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, and his temptations match these three things to a T. I don't think that John pulled these out from nowhere. I think he looks at the temptation, I think he goes back as far as the garden because you see these things there too. Think about it. Jesus' first temptation, Sunday school scholars, talk to me. What was the first temptation? No one remembers that? Yes, here, devil comes to Jesus, here are some stones. Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days, you're in the desert, you're kind of hungry. Turn these stones into bread. The first temptation appealed to a, remember I said it's legitimate or illegitimate? If you're hungry and you need to eat, is that a legitimate desire? Yes, it is. But that's what the devil appeals to. And what was Jesus' response? Jesus' response was to, because the temptation was more than just make yourself some bread. It was reject God's provision for you, you try and sustain you. And Jesus says that what sustains you is not self-satisfaction. Remember he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. What sustains you is not satisfying yourself, but satisfaction in the word of God. God had not given him a commandment to, to make these stones into bread, and so he was going to listen to God's word, not the desires of his flesh. Well, look at the second temptation. The second temptation, which was... That was the last one. Takes him on top of the temple, largest building in the city. Sometimes we miss it. We think that Jesus is there and it's empty. No, I would venture to think that from the nature of the temptation, it's while Jerusalem is busy and bustling. Throw yourself off of this building. The Father will send angels to carry you. It will be such a big spectacle. Everybody will see you. The devil gets smart between the first and second temptation. He's like, Jesus beat me with a scripture. I need a scripture. Okay. There's a side note there. The devil knows the Bible too, so don't just trust everybody who quotes the Bible. But anyway... He tells him, throw yourself off. God will give his angels charge over you. Deuteronomy 6.16. The angels will pick you up. You'll float to the ground. It will look amazing. And Jesus' response is to say, no, you're not to put God to the test. You don't put God to the test through trying to make a name for yourself. No. You trust in God. Well, the final temptation comes. Offers him all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, they look great. 
You can have these, Jesus. Appealing to the desires of the eyes. They can be all yours for the low, low price of worshipping me. <laughs> What's Jesus' response? Is that it where Jesus shifts his eyes away from that which can be seen on earth to the one who can be seen in glory, God and God alone. Listen, I know this sounds like a tall order to reject these things, but here's the comfort. It's been done before. And guess what? In the moments where you fail and the moments where you feel weak and the moments you feel like you can't do this, Christian, take comfort. Jesus did it for you. So you might want to think on that before you make the wrong choice. Consider who you are. Consider what the world is. Consider where your affections lie. Consider what drives this world. One more point and I'll be in my seat. Number five, consider your destiny. Verse 17, consider your destiny. The final consideration John would have us make comes to us in verse 17. You see it there? He says, the world, this system that's in opposition to God, this system that's made up of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, this world is passing away. And also it's lost. The desires that make it up are going away too. This system might act like it's here forever, but it's really not. I would argue that more so we're beginning to see that the seeds of its own destruction are already coming to coming home to roost in some pretty big ways. And for the believer, we recognize that a final day is coming, that one day the God who owns heaven and earth, the God who has installed his king on Zion, the God who Psalm 2 says holds the rulers of the earth in derision, one day that God will send his son to come for his people and human history will come to its final end. This world is not here to stay. It's here today and one day it will be gone tomorrow. But in contrast, I say this and I close, the believer is part of God's eternal kingdom. See what he says? He says, the one who does the will of God lives forever. There's the hope. We win. We remain. When the final day comes, we know where we're going. We know how this is going to end. Well, do we? I mean, we generally kind of punt on the issue of talking about the future. That's another sermon for another time. But here's one big benefit of thinking about the issues related to the future. It gives us some perspective when we look at this world. Whatever this world is going through is temporary. Remember what Paul says? Not looking at the things that are seen, but are the thing but at the things that are unseen. That's the ultimate reason why we can say with confidence, why we can with confidence reject what this world offers to us. Because this world is going away someday. Do you really want to back the losing horse? By the way, I, I said I'd tell you what happened in that movie, didn't I? Right at the beginning of the sermon. So things got bad. Looked real bad for Mr. Churchill. Looked like he was going to lose his job. And as a scene movie, I love it. His secretary basically tells him, Mr. Churchill, use what you have. And Mr. Churchill remembered, if there was one thing about Winston Churchill, that man could turn a phrase. 
genius with the English language. And so he steps into Parliament, and he basically gives the most rousing speech of all time, in my opinion, one of the most rousing speeches of all time anyway, basically saying, listen, we are not going to make peace with Mr. Hitler. No. He basically says, we're Britain. When did we ever, ever make peace with fascism? Never. And by the time he's done, the entire country's like, yeah, I think we know what we need to do now. And here's the thing. Spurgeon is rousing. Spurgeon's great. Not Spurgeon. Churchill's rousing. Churchill is great. Spurgeon is great for you. But when the God who created all things says, don't love the world because this world is passing away, it, I would hope, makes the hate-hate relationship a little bit easier. Yes, it's hard in this life, and yes, it means we have to deny ourselves things that at other times seem good and fine and fit. But here's the thing. If we keep some perspective, we recognize that rejecting this world, rejecting the siren song of worldliness is for our ultimate good as well as for God's ultimate glory. I pray that God would help us to maintain the right kind of relationship with this world for Jesus' sake. Join with me as I breathe a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we are reminded once again that we are those who have a citizenship that's not in this world. We have a citizenship that's in heaven. That in the words of Philippians, we are waiting for a Savior who is in heaven. Who will one day transform our lowly bodies to be in conformity to his glorious one. Father, help us that we would heed the warning of John not to love the world or the things that are in the world. Help us that we would maintain proper perspective as those who are headed as pilgrims to the heavenly city. Help us that we would, in the moments where we fail, because we will fail in this endeavor, we will have our moments where we're not perfect, where we cave. Help us to lean on the righteousness of Christ who fought these temptations and won where we had so miserably failed. Pray that you would take what we have heard right up on the tables of our hearts, that we know it experientially as we do in our minds. We ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.